episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. What on earth is going on here, I hear you say. You don't hear a peep from me for nine months, and then I'm back with two episodes in the space of a week. Well, let me explain all. Uh, Yesterday, I had the absolute pleasure of being interviewed by Jamie Tom for his fantastic podcast, which is called Beyond Survival, the New Teacher Podcast. Surprise, surprise, it's a podcast aimed at supporting teachers in the early stages of their career. And during the conversation, Jamie asked me two questions. First, he asked me, what do I wish I knew when I first started teaching that I know now? And secondly, he challenged me to come up with five tips to support new teachers in their early stages of their career. And I really, really enjoyed the conversation and I absolutely love Jamie's uh, podcast. So we decided that it would be a good idea for me to release our conversation on my podcast platform. So um, you're going to hear me chat away uh, to sharing my five tips and my reflections on teaching. And um, if you enjoy this, there's kind of three things that you could do. Um, Firstly, and definitely top of your list, would be to check out the rest of the episodes in in Jamie's podcast. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But if you just search on your podcast platform, Beyond Survival, the new teacher podcast, um, it'll pop up. It really is fantastic. Jamie's a great interviewer. Um, If you've heard Jamie on, um, on my Tips for Teachers podcast, you know he's full of wisdom, full of humility. Um, and he really brings the best out of his guests. So check out Beyond Survival. That's kind of takeaway number one. Uh, takeaway number two, if you enjoy this format where a guest shares five tips, then I've good news for you because on my Tips for Teachers podcast, that's all I do. And I invite guests from the wonderful world of education to share their five tips for teachers. So you can hear the likes of Jamie Tom, but you can also hear Dylan William, Daisy Christodoulou, Claire Seeley, Michael Pershon, Ollie Lovell, loads and loads of people sharing their five tips for teachers. So if you just um, search for tips for teachers um, in your podcast platform of choice or Google it, you'll find the podcast there. And finally, I'm really sorry, but just one final plug. Um, I've got my Tips for Teachers book out. Um, In my conversation with Jamie, I share five tips for teachers. In my book, I've got over 400 of those. So um, if this whets your appetite for a few practical tips that you can try the very next time you step into a classroom, just check out my Tips for Teachers book. It's not just for maths teachers either. So if you Google Tips for Teachers, it should come up. Or if you go to tipsforteachers.co.uk, you'll find a link to it. Anyway, I'll shut up. Enjoy this conversation between myself and the wonderful Jamie Tom. Hello and welcome to Beyond Survival, the new teacher podcast. My name is Jamie Tom. Each week on this podcast, an expert guest answers a central question for new teachers in 40 minutes or less. I'm absolutely delighted, I'm thrilled that this week I'm joined by the brilliant Craig Barton. Craig is host of, I'm going to be well, biased, but it's brilliant, it's the best podcast for education that's out there. It's called Tips for Teachers, and I know lots of the listeners on this show are big, big fans of that podcast. So it's a real catch to have Craig with us today. So not only is a podcast extraordinaire, he's the author of fantastic books about education, and he's just released a third book, 
which is called Tips for Teachers, which has, drumroll, over 400 ideas, practical, brilliant ideas that can improve your teaching. And today, Craig is very generously giving us 40 minutes of his time and we're, we're ambitiously going to try and squeeze in five essential, brilliant tips for teachers at the start of their career. So, Craig, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm very good, Jamie. Yeah, thank you very much for, for the invite. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, 40 minutes, five tips, going to be tough for me. Uh, we might just get through one or two questions uh, in that time, but we'll see. We'll see, we'll see where we go. Fantastic. We'll go ambitious and we'll see how we get it from there. Um, Craig, your book on maths teaching absolutely changed my whole perspective and world in education. It's brilliant. And one of the things I like about it is your own humility and honesty about your experience of teaching. And the, the question I'm going to ask you first is one I ask all guests. And I'd be fascinated to hear your answer. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the start of your career? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I should say for listeners, I think my career peaked in about 2018 when I wrote that book, How Wish I Taught Maths, and it's been a slow decline uh, ever since. But that book was a real good opportunity for me to, to look back at the many mistakes I'd made. And I asked myself that, that question a lot. What do I wish I'd known? now that I, that I didn't, what did I wish I know then that I, that I know now? And it's a tricky one. I think I've got two answers and you're going to see straight away, we're never going to get this done in 40 minutes because I already have two answers for, for one fairly <laughs> straightforward question. Um, if you pushed me and I had to think of one thing, it was it would probably be to do less. Um, Harry Fletcher Ward has a nice way of saying this, do less but better, particularly in the planning phase. Um, the classic thing I think novice teachers uh, do is over plan. I did it so, so much. You try to fit so much in and you end up doing nothing particularly well. So um, Harry goes as far to say is cut your pl lesson plans in half. And I think that's quite smart advice. So if, you, if you're trying to fit in four activities, just do two activities. If you're thinking of asking 10 questions, just ask five questions and just spend more planning time thinking about that 50% of the, the content, how you're going to get the most out of it, and then spend lesson time, double the amount of time on that reduced content. And I, I think looking back, many of my lessons in the first five or six years of my career would have been miles better just by doing less, but, but doing it better. So I think that would be the single thing I wish I, I knew. But the kind of second answer to this question is, I remember many years ago on my Mr. Bart Maths podcast, I had Anne Watson on, who's very prominent in the world of education. And I asked her this same question. And she said that she couldn't answer it because she used the phrase, whatever she, whatever she learns now, it speaks to her condition. And the point that she made was that you can read a book or listen to advice when you first start your career and it will mean something to you. But maybe it's only five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, that it, that it really hits home about what it truly means. And I'm experiencing this myself now. So <laughs> I started recording my Mr. Barton Maths podcast. First episode was 2015. And what I'm doing now, I'm going on a little bit of a project where I'm re-listening to old episodes. So like Dylan William from 2016, the Robert and Elizabeth Bjork from 2017. I'm re-listening to them now, five years on, six years on. And I'm taking so many different things from them than I did, you know, five or six years ago. So I think it's really difficult when you're a new teacher because you get lots of advice, but 
there's a chance that some of that advice, it's only really going to hit home, you know, five or six years down, down the line. And maybe sometimes you've kind of just got to go through a bit of a grind and make a few mistakes to fully kind of find your feet in it and realize where you're at. So that's my kind of waffly answer to, to, a, to a very straightforward question. Not waffly at all, Craig. That was excellent. Thank you. And you're already hitting us with the tips here. This is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so those two tips, I think that it's almost, and we could go on a huge tangent here, but it's almost this idea of minimalism, stripping things back, keeping things simple as much as possible. Brilliant tip. And then I love that second one. And so much of that resonates with me in terms of it might sometimes take a long time for something to finally that light bulb moment to go off in your head. And sometimes you need that pace, that sort of space, that emotional detachment to really recognize something and to give yourself time to experience that. Exactly. So that's brilliant. Thank you. Okay, Craig. So we've got this context of teachers in the first few years of their career. So most ministers are either training to be teachers or in the first few years. So what might be from your over 400 fantastic <laughs> tips that make up that book. And it's such an addictive read. You know, it is, you will literally fly through it. And I was thinking, you know, in terms of working with the trainee teachers that I'm doing at the moment, as I was reading, I was getting all these brilliant tips and ideas that I could go through with them. So what would be your first big tip? Great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky this. And again, with, the, with a couple of disclaimers, one, as I've already mentioned, Sometimes you've got to let these kind of tips breathe and try them out and, and make your mistakes. And also a big disclaimer that I can only speak from my very narrow domain of experience. So I'm a, a secondary school maths practitioner. So if you're a maths new teacher listening, even then you've got to take what I say with a pinch of salt. But particularly if you're teaching a different subject, it's about thinking, is there anything in this tip? And crucially, what would I need to change to make it work for me? That's I think that's always the question you've got to ask whenever you read anything, listen to anything. Knowing what I know about my kids, knowing what I know about my context, what would I need to change to make this work for me? So with all that said and done, um, I'm going to go in with a biggie straight away, Jamie, if that's okay. And God knows whether we'll even get to number two after this, because this, this for me is the key. Right? This is the absolute key, because <laughs> so much stuff kind of follows on from this. And I'm building this up. This will be a massive anticlimax now. But I think a really smart thing to do, which I didn't do enough for about 10 years, is... Every question you ask students in class, just think, is there a way I can get all my kids to respond versus just hearing from one or two? So it's your classic thing of, if I'm going to ask a question, I've got two choices. I can either go down the hands up or the cold call route where I'm going to hear from one or two kids, or I can go down the mass participation route, maybe with mini whiteboards, ABCD cards, paired discussion, group work, whatever, where all the kids are going to contribute. And I think I'm going to go so far as to say all teachers, and I'm definitely lumping myself here into this, would benefit from shifting the proportion of questions where they elicit one or two responses to greater number of questions where they elicit more responses. And there's a number of reasons for this. I think I've got eight, and I'm just going to rattle through these if that's okay, Jamie, and we'll see where we get, mm -hmm. uh, get with this. Um, the first is the obvious one is that if kids know that they're going to be called upon to respond, however that is, and as I say, many, there's lots of different ways, many whiteboards, voting systems, whatever it is, if they know that they're going to respond, they have a greater incentive to think. The problem with cold call is that in theory, when you say something like, Jamie, 
oh, oh well, r- complete wrong way of doing it. If I said, what's Pythagoras' theorem? Pause, Jamie. In theory, everybody's thinking during that pause. But I don't think most classrooms work like that. I think kids play a bit of a game here and think there's 25 kids in this class, 30 kids in this class. What are the chances of him asking me? Pretty low. So I'll just have a little mental sit off for a bit. And if he says my name, then I'll start doing my thinking. Whereas if you know you have to get your answer down on a mini whiteboard, or if you know you've got to vote A, B, C, D, you have got a greater incentive to think about the answer to that question, regardless of whether you're called upon or not. And we know that that act of thinking, that act of retrieval is going to be the thing that strengthens that memory and and so on and so forth. So that would be reason number one, I think, but there's seven more as well. So a big one from the teacher's perspective is if I call upon all my kids to respond and I see those responses, my check for understanding is so much better, so much more valid, so much more reliable. Whereas if I just call upon you to answer, Jamie, and you get it right, and I make an assumption that the rest of the kids would have got it right, who knows? Who knows? Um, So in, in terms of a valid check for understanding, the more responses we get, the better. Now, number three, Jamie, I got from you when you came on Tips for Teachers. And I've been banging on about this because it really changed my way of thinking. I know you speak very passionately and write very passionately about bringing your quieter students, getting the most out of your quieter students. And I think the way you phrased it when we spoke on my Tips for Teachers podcast is come up with ways to celebrate your introverted students. And I've really taken this to heart. And the more I think about it, these tools of mass participation, whiteboards, voting systems, they're so good for your quieter students because for some kids, it's the worst thing in the world to be called upon to give an answer, particularly when you're not sure about it. But if you're, if you're holding up your whiteboard amidst a sea of 25, 30 other kids, as a teacher, what I can do is I can think, okay, it would be a really bad if I called upon Jamie here. But you know what? I can now see Jamie's answer. So what I can do later on in the lesson is I can just have a quiet word with Jamie and say, by the way, I saw what you wrote on that whiteboard. That was absolutely brilliant, Matt. And that might just be the thing that builds up your confidence to the point where in a few weeks down the line, you're more than happy to share your answer and I can cold call you and so on. So to celebrate your quieter, less confident students, I think these tools of mass participation have have a really important role to play. Um, I'll just rattle through the last few, then I promise I'll shut up, Jamie, and uh, you'll you'll wish you never had me on here, I'll tell you that much. Um, (laughs) Reason four, if all kids respond, it shows the kids that all their answers are valued. So imagine, Jamie, I've said to you, I've, I've set a challenge for the class, and you've been thinking really hard about it, and then I call upon Emma to give her answer. You might sit there thinking, what was the point in me even thinking about that? That effort was wasted. Whereas if you have an opportunity to show your answer, whiteboard, vote, pair discussion, whatever it is, even if I don't call upon you, at least your efforts haven't been in vain because your answer's got out there. Your answer's more visible. Your answer's more present. So your answer's valued. I think that's important. Um, Reason five, nearly there, Jamie. Reason five, um, as a teacher, I can be more tactical about which answers I call upon. So if I cold call, I have no idea what you're going to say. You could say a right answer, a wrong answer, an interesting answer, a boring answer. I have no idea. Whereas if I can see all my kids' responses, I may spot that actually uh, Ben, who I was not going to call upon, he's written something really interesting down on his whiteboard, or he's voted a really interesting response to a diagnostic question. So actually, instead of asking Jamie, who I was going to, I'm going to ask Ben, because I think, Ben, I need to get that answer around the rest of the class so I can be more tactical with the, with the answers that I focus upon. Uh, final final three, I'll rattle through these. I can bring kids into the conversation more. If all kids have voted or shared an answer, I've got more answers to work with. So I can say, Ben, 
let's use your answer. Emma, let's use your answer. Discuss. If the, the answers are out there, there's more answers to work with. I can bring more kids into the conversation. This is the bit, this is a big one, Jamie. What do you reckon to this? So I'll go controversial here. Um, so I watch a lot of lessons a lot of lessons these days. I'm very lucky. I'm in schools all the time. Have you ever done this? Because I've done this, right? So you do an explanation, award-winning explanation, brilliant explanation. You then ask a child, cold call a child, Michael, what's the answer to this? He doesn't have a clue. So then you ask Ben, he doesn't have a clue. So then you ask Emma, Emma gets it right. And as the teacher, you conclude, Emma was the one who was listening to your brilliant explanation. The other two weren't listening. So let's move on. Now, that's so easy to do. Whereas if you see from your kids' whiteboards, from their ABCD cards, from their paired discussion, if you see three quarters of your class don't have a clue what you're talking about, you have to respond. You have to do something about it in the face of overwhelming evidence. So mass participation keeps your teaching honest. It makes you more responsive as a teacher because you can't hide away from just listening to one or two responses until you find the one you want. I think that's a big one. Um, and the final one is I can still cold call, but I can do so having seen a load more responses, having been a bit more sure that my checks are understanding more valid. So I get all the benefits. I can still cold call, but I get all the other advantages if I can see my kids' responses first. So in a nutshell, I think the single biggest thing, if you were to turn off at this point, the biggest thing I would want teachers to take away is every time you ask a question, just think, can I elicit more responses? Because I think your teaching gets better, your check for understanding gets better, your kids think harder, your kids learn more and so on. And that, that is something I, I wish it hadn't taken me 15 years to, to get a bit better at. I will now be quiet, Jamie. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. Oh, it's incredibly persuasive, Craig. Thank you so much for that. It's, it's got me, I was just visualizing myself in the, visualizing, visualizing myself in the classroom. And thinking, actually, how many times do you, and we all do, fall into that trap of asking individuals or getting a little scan of the room. And your theory, mass participation, elicits, you know, and there's, a, there's so many different reasons there. But, you know, I really like that idea of student motivation, student engagement, student actually you being able to hoover up more of a sense of the room. I guess if I was a a new teacher, a couple of things I'd be thinking. First of all, I, I think there's there's maybe a little bit of a fear of mini whiteboards. And without sounding vaguely stalkerish, Craig, I know you have over 22 tips about mini I whiteboards do, in, do, your, yeah. <laughs> your, in your not that was counting. I know there's loads of tips about how to use them effectively. But also be thinking, I'd maybe be getting in a slight panic and thinking, all right, do I do, I do it every single time? Every time I ask a question, I'm a thinking, go mass. So how, how do you balance that? Do you still ask individuals questions or does that make sense about the yeah, it makes, sort of it makes Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, so a couple of things to say. I think cold call still has a role to play. It's quite a nice classroom dynamic. It's um, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? It's quite nice. Um, it's quick. It's good for longer responses that perhaps aren't suited to mini whiteboards. So cold call certainly has a role to play. Um, I go back to what I said before. It's worth thinking, can I just boost the noise? So if you're not a, a regular mini whiteboard user or you're not a um, ABCD card user, it's just worth thinking as a little experiment, can I just use mini whiteboards once this lesson or twice this lesson? Just kind of, kind of ease mm -hmm. them in there. Um, again, 
it's not going to be suited for everything, but it's a classic thing, right? The more you use mini whiteboards, the more you use voting systems, the quicker you get using them, the quicker your kids get using them. And, it, and you lose a lot of that kind of downtime and that, that unproductive time that you often get the first time you introduce something like that. So again, it's a, it, I, I'm a massive mini whiteboard fan, but I'm just saying this as kind of a maths teacher. Um, and again, as you say in the book, I talk about 22 ways. Once you've decided you want to use mini whiteboards more, then it's kind of lots of different ways and things you can do to make you kind of your life a bit easier and your kid's life a bit easier. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't want to say to anybody, right, abandon everything you're doing. Everything's got to be mass participation. But just thinking, can I just boost, like just shift it? If it, if 50% of the questions I'm doing at the moment are mass participation, what would happen if it was 60%? What What's that extra question that you're going to use? And I think just kind of edging it that way a little bit is, is, is the way to do it. Because we all know you try and change something too much just becomes a disaster and you give up on it. So just trying to edge it towards a bit greater proportion of mass participation, I, I think is quite a smart thing to do. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's an exciting one for new teachers to explore with how they can try these different strategies. And I love that idea of kind of gradually introducing mini whiteboards. If it's not a dynamic that you or your class are familiar with, then it's about making those small steps and tweaks and changes. Brilliant stuff, Craig. So uh, we're 20 minutes in, Craig. Uh, we're never going to get through five. Uh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. I've got a couple of quickies in there, Jamie. We'll be all right. We'll be all oh, right. We'll cheeky. Be right. We'll love fun. it. Okay. What is your second? After that brilliant first one, mass participation, what is your second golden tip? All right. So this is about wait time or thinking time. And there's, there's an obvious point to this and then a subtle point. So the obvious point is that teachers don't give, generally don't give kids enough time to think about an answer. So again, you might be familiar with this. Mary Budrow does some research. She sits in a load of teachers' rooms. She times the amount of time between asking a question and a teacher calling upon a child to respond. And she finds that typically teachers give less than one second in between question and answer. Often it the time was so short the person timing it didn't have time to press the stopwatch. Like teachers are so, and the reason for this, and it, again, it's 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 quite a kind of coming from a good place. The reason is teachers want to keep the lessons pacey. It's all about pace. Whenever you're observed by somebody, you need to work on your pace. It's the worst advice you could, you could ever be given. Work on your, it's so meaningless. And the way it kind of manifests itself is right, ask a question, give me the answer, give me the answer, give me the answer. The problem is with that, if the kids don't have enough thinking time, they don't have time to retrieve, they rush, they go for their first instinct, Kahneman's work where he talks about system one, system two, the kids don't have time to reflect on their answer, they just yell out the first thing that's in their mind. Some kids don't have time to think at all. No retrieval practice, probably an unreliable check for understanding it, it's really bad. So uh, Budrow recommends, and I think this is quite smart, that you never dip below three seconds. Three seconds is your benchmark. So whenever you ask a question, as a minimum, and I do this physically, I just tap out on my leg, one, two, three, and then I call upon a student to answer. And if I feel like the question needs a bit longer, I'll kind of give it as long as I would normally feel, but then still tap out three seconds just to make sure I don't kind of dip below. But that's the obvious bit, well, the fairly obvious bit, that, that if you say to a teacher, you need to work on your thinking time, teachers assume you mean between asking a question and calling upon a kid to respond. But the subtle bit, is the second component of thinking time or wait time. And that's between when a child's given an answer 
and the teacher acts on that answer. So what typically happens in, in classrooms, and I see this all the time, is the teacher asks a question, and if they're on the ball, they then give the kids adequate time to think, and then they say, Jamie, what do you think the answer is? Jamie says, C squared equals A squared plus B squared. And then I say, fantastic, and move on. Or I say, Emma, what did you think of that? And I don't give the kids time to think about your answer. So the second think time or the second wait time is the time between an answer being out there and the teacher making their next move. And Budrow's research suggests that that is even more important for learning than that first wait time. Because that second wait time is your opportunity to evaluate your peer's answer, compare it to your answer, think what's the same, what's the difference, do I understand that and so on. And if you don't give that time, and I say let that answer hang there, if you don't let that answer hang in the air and give kids time to process it, then it just becomes a kind of game of ping pong where one kid says something, another kid says, you have no idea what's going on. So again, three seconds seems to be the benchmark. So every time a child gives an answer, just let that answer hang there for three seconds, three seconds of silence. Now, the first time you do this, the kids will look at you like you've lost your mind, like you're a video that's suddenly frozen or something like that. So you might want to tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it. You might want to give them a prompt and say, just think about this answer for three seconds. And then you make your move, either say that's correct or you bring another child in or whatever. But just trying to work on this wait time, tapping out three seconds between question and answer and answer and teacher move. I think, again, is, is a relatively straightforward thing a teacher could do that'll probably have quite a positive impact. So that'd be my second tip. Uh, think about your wait time. What you'll, what you'll notice there, Craig, is I've left three seconds. Yeah, after that was you're, good. You're that was... Oh, <laughs> see, I am listening. Uh, it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. This. I love this stuff. I think it's, it's so important. Because you, it's about driving a cultural norm in your classroom that is about giving space for thinking, acknowledging answers and really deep stuff. And I liked your ping pong point. I think that's a really shrewd one because that's often what it feels like in a classroom. And that, for me, sometimes as an observer, I'm kind of going, I'm feeling exhausted because yeah. I can't keep up with, with what's going on. And I think your, your actual... The tip about tapping it out is a really, really good one because I was thinking with my kind of new teacher hat on, it's a confidence thing as well mm. to let a silence linger in a room and to let a moment linger in a room. You're right in the sense of it feels like an eternity. Yeah. It's almost like a woo. Um, but that tapping, just I was doing it, I'm a leg, I was listening to it. It works really, really well. Just three seconds. I think and so. And that, I, I Sorry, Jamie. And I was, sorry, yeah, go for it. Sorry, for no, it. no, just to say you're right. And I, I just really wanted to pick up on what you said there, that it feels like an eternity. And I, it goes back to what I said before. New teachers often get criticized for the pace of their lessons, but this is the wrong time to speed things up. It is the wrong time. At pace, by all means, cut out some of the faff that happens in the rest of lessons. But of all the time you need to slow things down, it's whenever you've asked a question and you're waiting for a, a child to answer or they've given that answer and you're waiting to evaluate it. That is a good time. And if anybody criticizes you for pace there, a good thing to ask is to say, just show me some research on this. Just show me some research that I need to cut this down. Yeah. And they'll 
obviously they, they can't because there isn't any. Like It annoys me so much, Jamie, because this pace thing gets chucked at new teachers all the time. And again, a lot of the research suggests the last thing you want to do is rush particularly the question and answer in their phase of a lesson. Brilliant. And those first two tips for me, there's an interconnection between them. Because if you're getting mass participation, if you're enabling that mass participation to be really processed, to have time to allow it to, to linger and think, then the quality of your classroom dialogue is really going to be pushed forward. Yeah, That's really right. helpful, Craig. Thank you're you. You're right. And again, just a final aside on that, Budrow, again, just to pick up on what you said there, one of the findings is if teachers give this extra wait time, they teachers themselves use the kids' responses better because as a teacher, you've got time to evaluate what the child said. So you, you pick up on little subtleties with it. You'll like give yourself a bit of extra thinking time as opposed to, we've all been there. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You haven't, you haven't time to process what the kids have said at all, but it gives you a bit of kind of thinking time as well. So yeah, I, I think it's an important one, that one. Yeah. And I, I could talk about this all day though, but it, it stops that, that kind of almost meaningless praise that I know I used to do all the time. You know, what a fantastic answer yeah. really, really quickly. But the space then it gives everybody the opportunity to really think about the answer. So thank you, Craig. Fascinating stuff. Um, okay. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of channeling my inner Craig Barter because I know this is exactly how you do your podcast. <laughs> I love the format of it because it's so nice and simple and clear. Um, so what is tip number three, Craig? Okay. So, right. So I'm cheating a bit here because it's kind of a bit of a two for one, but the first part of it's dead quick and then we'll, we'll dive a bit deeper into the second part. So it's surrounding paired discussions and um, I'm a bit of a group work skeptic, although I'm coming around to it a little bit. I spoke to a guy in my podcast uh, called Sammy Kempner who does a lot of group work and, and he's kind of get me a bit more on board with it. But I, I'd always kind of prefer paired work as, as a general rule. So just two little kind of tips, related tips for paired work. So the first is directly related to what we've just been saying there about wait time. What often happens, I find, is teachers ask a question and then they say, OK, discuss this with the person next to you. And the problem there is that that pair discussion often, whichever child has kind of got to the answer first, they just dominate that conversation and the other kids are a bit overwhelmed and they go, don't get a chance to say what they think and so on. So anytime you're about to instigate a pair discussion, always make sure the kids have had a chance to think individually first. It goes back to this wait time. It might be three seconds. It might be five seconds. Give them an opportunity to jot down notes. Mini whiteboards work quite well for this. But you want the kids arriving at that paired discussion when they've both had chance to consider things and they're both ready to contribute. And again, I think too many paired discussions fall flat because the teacher launches the kids into them before they've had chance to process things individually. So that'd be kind of part A of this tip. And then part B of my paired discussion tip is when you stop a paired discussion. So I picked this up from Doug Lamarve and I really like this. So what I normally do is I'll say like, okay, discuss with your partner for two minutes. And I'm quite rigid on the two minutes or I'll be flexible. And whenever kind of the noise is kind of dying down a bit and I think, okay, they've had their discussion. I'll then say, okay, let's stop everybody. And then I'll do whatever I'm doing next, call upon people. What Lamov says, and it's quite counterintuitive this, but I've tried it and I think this works is you want the, you want to cut the paired discussion off at the point where the noise, the engagement, the enthusiasm, the discussions are at their peak. And he calls this kind of at the crest of the wave. 
Because if you do it then, then whatever you do next, whether you say to kids, okay, now get on with your stuff individually, or you say, okay, um, Emma and Ben, what were you discussing? Jamie and Tom, what were you discussing? The kids have got something to say. They take that momentum from the pair discussion into whatever you're doing next. Whereas if you let that discussion fizzle out a bit, whenever you then say, okay, Ben, what were you talking about? Oh, they've kind of either forgotten a little bit or whatever. Or if you then say, okay, crack on with your work. It's just a bit lethargic. So I really try and do this now. Cut off those paired discussions at the point where, again, this crest of the wave analogy I really like. And again, it's counterintuitive, but I think it works. So they'd be my two kind of related paired discussion tips. Love it. So before they've launched into the, the peer discussion, um, there is some space for individual thinking and reflection. And Craig, you've mentioned this already. I'm always thinking about the introverts, the quieter mm. students. And I love that because it gives them yeah. the ability to just gather themselves, gather the thoughts. And that's useful for all students as well. It's about the depth of thinking. The second one, I also think is brilliant. And um, so this idea you're, the crest of the wave. And every time you did it, you did a little wave. Yeah. So like, sorry, future, not be able to see that. But um, the crest of, crest of the wave, I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Get it when the energy's high. Again, if I put my new teacher hat on, I remember what I did when, when I had a kind of peer discussion. I would wait, not till the crest of the wave, but I would wait until the sort of the dribblings of the yeah, exactly. Because exactly. fundamentally I was thinking, I can't interject here. The room's yeah. too loud. Yeah. Like yeah. How, how, so from a, it makes sense to me as a conceptual point, but from a behavior management point of view, how do you come in at that tidal wave point? How do you, without interjecting the kids going, Oh, I'm having a good, I'm a good conversation. <laughs> you know, it might be about last night's football, but um, how, how do you break that up in a sort of, in a sensitive way and an assertive way. Yeah, it's a good question. Sense. I think it's two points, two parts to, to, to the answer here, Jamie. So the first is, and I think this is a kind of bit of a general kind of good practice is to tell the kids why you're doing what you're doing. So to say, mm -hmm. say to kids, yeah. okay, have your pair discussion just as a warning. I'm probably going to stop you at the point where you could probably do with a few extra seconds. But the reason I'm doing that. It's because I want to carry this energy forward and hear what you're saying. So then if, if for whatever reason I say, okay, Jamie, okay, stop everybody. Jamie, what do you think? And you say, oh, I was just, I said, well, tell me, tell me now. What were you about to say? Let's go for it. So you can manage it that way. So tell the kids why you're doing it. And again, in terms of practicalities, whether you have either a clap or a, you, know, you see people do like the teacher puts the hand up and they wait till everybody else has put their hand up or some visual aid or something like that just to indicate to the kids that now's the time to stop. But no matter what you do on that side of things, that will be undermined if you haven't got the kids on board as to why you're doing what you're doing. Because as you say, they'll be annoyed that they've been stopped mid-flow. But if you can justify why and use that energy, I think it can work quite well. Oh, I love that answer. It's, I've been thinking a lot about this, about the reactivity you get in classrooms, particularly from a secondary context and how that teenagers are wired to sort of react. And one of the ways I've been reading a lot about is, is just validation. It's just that concept of why you are doing things and explaining that as carefully as possible to make everything clear in terms of a purpose for things. And that the way you phrased it, you know, this idea, you're going to be having a brilliant conversation, but I really want us to share this throughout the classroom. 
you know, I think that's got, that's got such a positive messaging to it as well. That's really helpful, Craig. Thank you. Okay, we are on number four. We're not being too bad here, are we? This is flying. This is the fastest I've ever done this, Jamie. We're absolutely flying. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. So this one, now this is interesting. I don't know if this is math specific or not, but I have a feeling it's not. So I'm going to gamble and we're just going to go for it and see what happens, right? So I think I'm obsessed with, and I have been obsessed for the last 12 months, is the power of learner-generated examples. And normally... For the first 14 years of teaching, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near this. I would have generated all my own examples because I thought a really good way to check kids' understanding was to ask them carefully planned questions. And I still think that's the case. I think there's a big role to play for teachers coming up with their own questions, using their experience and expertise. But the more I read about this, and crucially, the more I try this, the more I see the power in terms of a really good check for understanding is to get kids to generate their own examples under certain constraints. And in the book, I talk about three different frameworks for this. And I'll just share one of them with you today that I think is probably the most kind of transferable. So let's say, for example, that you, I'll just use a maths analogy and you can tell me whether this will will transfer, Jamie. So let's say I just taught you um, about equivalent fractions, for example. And I want to test your understanding of equivalent fractions. So one thing I could do is I could set you a load of questions on equivalent fractions, and that would be fine. But another thing I could do is I could use this learner-generated framework, which is called give an example of. So I would say to you, and it works well on mini whiteboards, but it's fine on books as well. So if it's mini whiteboards, they split them up into quadrants. So they've got four areas. They can do the same in books or piece of paper or whatever. And I'd say, okay, in the top left of your mini whiteboard, I'd like you to give an example of a fraction that's equivalent to three quarters for example. So the kids all write it down, whatever they want, any example they want. Then in the top right, I say, okay, give another example of a fraction that's equivalent to three quarters. So write down whatever they want, six eighths, whatever it is, 30, 40, whatever. Bottom left, I then say, write an interesting example of a fraction that's equivalent to three quarters. Now the word interesting is quite interesting in this context. I used to say, give a difficult example. But in maths, what that means to kids is they just stick a load of zeros on. They just go as big a number as possible. So you have like 3 million over 4 million and stuff. As soon as you say interesting, what you're trying to do here is find the boundary of their knowledge. How far can they push their knowledge, in this case, equivalent fractions, without tipping over into something that isn't equivalent? So will they involve in maths? Will they chuck a decimal in there? Do they think 0.3 over 0.4 is equivalent? Will they chuck a a third in there? Will they chuck a bit of algebra in there? So what the technical term for this is a boundary example. You're trying to get them to generate an example as close to the boundary of their knowledge as they can without tipping over into something that isn't an equivalent fraction in this case. Now, the kids find that bit hard, but we're going to use that example in a second. And then finally, bottom right, and this is my favorite bit, I say, in the bottom right thing, I would like you to give me an example of a pair of fractions that somebody, or sorry, an example of a fraction that somebody might think is equivalent to three quarters, but you know it isn't. So in other words, what you're challenging your kids to do here is to generate a non-example, but not just any non-example. You don't just want them writing down a half or something. You want them writing something that somebody might think is equivalent to. So what you're technically doing here is you're trying to see if they can come up with an example just the other side of the boundary. So you bottom left is to get them inside the boundary. Bottom right is to see if they can get outside the boundary. 
And just kind of practically, before I shut up about this, the way I kind of play this out, they do this all on the mini whiteboards. I say, three, two, one, show me your answers. And that's more for me just to check kids are actually engaging with the task. It's more a check for effort or participation than understanding. Because if there's four answers and 30 kids, I can't take everything in. And then what I say to the kids is, okay, swap with the person next to you. I want you to mark each other's work. Do you, if you agree that the first three are equivalent, put ticks, and the last one is not equivalent, put a cross. If you disagree with any, put a question mark, have an argument with the person next to you. And if you can't settle it, tell me and we'll discuss it as a class. And you can guarantee any of those contentious examples are going to be worthy of whole class discussion because they're going to be addressing, there's going to be a misconception in there or something like that. I can pick out a few interesting ones that I've seen, put them on the board and we can discuss them. But those bottom left and bottom right ones where we discuss essentially interesting examples and non-examples that the kids have generated, I just find they produce the most fertile discussions and it's such a good check of kids' understanding. And it's so quick to do. It allows the kids to be creative. It allows them to do engage in paired discussion. We get a whole class discussion out of it. And certainly in maths, it's incredibly versatile because I can do this with anything. Anything I've taught the kids, I can just get them to exemplify it. And I just find it a really good check for understanding. So that's kind of the power of learner-generated examples that I'm relatively new to embracing, but I'm a little bit obsessed with now at this stage. Yeah, that's really exciting, actually, in terms of a, a method of doing lots of what we've talked about already through the past 40 minutes or so. You know, this idea that you are getting everybody involved, it's mass participation. It's interesting. It's challenging. It's getting them to really think. And I was thinking, you know, from an English point of view, my subject, could that be applied? And actually, there was loads of creative ideas running through my mind. You know, you could do it on sentence construction. You could do it on verbs, powerful verbs that kids could use in sentences and going through each of these those stages there as well. So I think that'd be a really interesting one for people to experiment for listeners. Yeah, it's, it's a so thank useful you, framework, just this example, example, interesting example, interesting non-example. It's for any kind of definition, like I tried, I was working with an English colleague and he sent me the challenge of doing it with, with a noun, give an example of a noun, another example of a noun, mm. an interesting example of a noun, and then yes. that challenging one, something that somebody might think is a noun, but you know isn't. And it sets it up for a bit of kind of peer-to-peer -peer kind of coaching almost and stuff. It's, yeah, I think it's quite a powerful structure, but again, I'm, I'm a bit biased on this. That word as well, and I think that if you really let that linger, can you come up with an interesting yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no. And kids kind of, I can just imagine them shuffling forward exactly. and the seats and like, <laughs> ready to take on exactly, that Exactly, exactly. That's great. Right, Craig, I've conscious you time. I might sneak you over the 40 minutes. Yeah, uh, I'm fine um, for time, Jamie. Bit. I could talk all day to you, but are you okay with the format here? I don't want you, to kind of break you. Yeah, absolutely. Before. Right, okay. Can we do the last, last one? one? Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, last one's fairly quick. Thank you. Last, last, last one's reasonably quick. So my last one is um, about confidence, student confidence. And my tip is to assign confidence scores to students' answers. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. And just a bit of background, uh, we did some research with my Diagnostic Questions website about the power of student confidence. And the way, way we did this, we published the research paper. Um, we give the kids a multiple choice diagnostic question. We ask them whether they think the answer is A, B, C, or D. We ask them to give an explanation. 
And then before we told them whether they were right or wrong, we asked them to rate how confident they felt in their answers. And we did this with like an emoji scale from kind of five, five different faces from like, I'm dead happy or I ain't got a clue, blah, blah, blah. And we analyzed the, the results and there was a couple of fascinating things. Um, kids tend to generally tend to overestimate in maths their understanding. They tend to feel more confident than their actual answers suggest that they are. Uh, this would be no surprise to anybody. Boys tend to be more confident than girls uh, in maths and blah, 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 blah. But aside from kind of doing it, we did it on our platform. You can do this dead easily just, you know, on paper. So like if you give your kids some 10 questions to work through, just before you go through the answers, just say, just, just indicate how confident you feel about each of those answers. Scale of one to five, smiley face, whatever, anything like that. Um, you do it with homework. So before you hand your homework in, just next to each question, just put how confident you feel. Do it with test papers, whatever. Now, why why on earth would you do this? Well, there are three reasons, I think, why it's quite a smart thing, thing to do this. So the first is, as soon as kids have to... In fact, there's four, I've just thought of another one, so four reasons. So the first is, as soon as kids assign a confidence score or to their answer, all of a sudden their answer means something a bit more to them. I call this skin in the game. So as soon as you, you're a bit more invested in your answer, but if you've kind of said, you know what, I'm confident in this answer, you're a bit more eager to see what the actual answer is. So it gets, tends to get kids to take kind of the reviewing of answers or the correction phase or going through answers. They tend to take it a bit more seriously if they've assigned confidence scores, which is a good thing. Um, the second thing is it's quite a nice, this was the one I forgot, it, it provides a little extra check for them. So I don't know if it's the same in English, Jamie, but if you say to kids, check your work, I don't think there's three words in the English language that have less of an impact on kids. Check your work, like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know, in one ear, out the other. But if you say, okay, now you've finished, go back and assign your confidence scores, the kids end up rereading their answers because they're trying to remember how they felt about it. And that's why I get the kids to do their confidence scores after they've finished all their work. And more often than not, they'll pick up on a few daft little errors whilst they're doing the confidence scores. But here are the big two reasons. Here are the big two reasons. So first is it's a much better indication to kids of what they know than just like seven out of 10. If it could get seven out of 10 on a test, well, whatever, it's fine. But if you draw their, their attention to the questions that they were confident about, but they actually got wrong, and you can do this by saying to kids, okay, now we've gone through the answers. I want you to write down what were your what were your three highest confident errors? What were those three questions that you thought you knew, but actually you didn't? If you can draw their attention to those, then that puts them in a much better position when it comes to their revision, because they know the exact areas they need to focus on. And they, by the way, of course, are the areas that if you hadn't done this, they might not have focused on because they think they know it. They're confident in these areas, but you've drawn their attention to where a problem is. And the fourth and final reason, and I've saved the biggest one to last, why I think this is a good idea, is the fascinating finding of the hypercorrection effect, which uh, this is Janet Butterfield's work, which suggests that highest, the higher the confidence in an error you are, if you receive corrective feedback in the form of a correct answer and you understand that correct answer, you're much more likely to remember the right way to do something than you are if you had a low confidence error. So the way this plays, and the, the, the reason for this, I think anyway, is kind of a cognitive shock. So if you, if you do a question and then the teacher says, how confident do you feel? And you put like 10 out of 10 confidence or a big smiley face, and then you see the wrong the answer and yours is wrong. You're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. some mechanism seems to happen. Maybe you're then a bit more engaged in trying to figure out how to do it or whatever it is, but it seems to then be the case 
that you're much more likely to remember the correct way to do it once you've received the feedback. So the way I do this practically in maths, and again, you'll be able to tell me whether this has any transferability at all, is the, let's say the kids do a, a low stakes quiz, 10 questions or whatever. They've done all the questions. They assign the confidence scores. I put all the answers up on the board. The kids self-mark and I say, right, now you've self-marked. Find me your three highest confident errors. And I want you either to create review cards on them or whatever, correct them, discuss them with your partner, whatever. But the only three questions I want you to focus on are your three highest confident errors. And I justify this to the kids because these are the ones that if we get these sorted, because of the power of this hypercorrection effect, these are, these are the ones that are going to stick with you and so on. And for all the other reasons, the kids are more invested in it and so on and so forth. It seems to just make that review process so much more engaging for the students. And I think so much more beneficial. So if you haven't already, I'd recommend possibly experimenting by getting kids to assign confidence scores before either you mark it or they mark it or whatever, and then shifting their attention to their highest confident errors. So that'd be my fifth and final tip. Great. The one thing I will say from this conversation <clears throat> is I'm dying to get back in the classroom. Yes. This is just absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Because for me, that, 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 that process you've discussed there, one of the things I was always wrestling with was actually how to get kids much more invested in their work and thinking through how effectively they're doing things. And that process you've described there is a real passport mm. to help them to do that. So it's not a case of them just launching the book at you and going, well, yeah. <laughs> mark it for me. Stay up all night, mark it for me. Give me feedback. It's a process where they are gathering that ability to really effectively self-assess how they're getting on as well. I think so. And really again, I don't know if, if this is the same in English as well, Jamie, but like the kids will do like a mock exam or whatever in maths and you'll mark it all. And maybe you'll do a load of written feedback or whatever, and you give it back to the kids and they're only interested in two things, what score they got and what score their mates got. It's all they're bothered about. All your written feedback, they ignore. Even the questions they got wrong, a lot of the time they ignore. But if you let them do that, but then say, okay, now find me your three highest confident errors and figure out how to correct them. All of a sudden they've got a structure to that review process and they've got an incentive to do it. So just for helping kids get the most out of corrections and stuff, I, I just find it practically, you know, quite, quite a straightforward thing to do and, and potentially quite an effective thing to do. Craig Barton, you're the only man in education, the only person in education I would have let go over the 40 ah. minutes here because this has been absolutely <laughs> golden. So one of the things I do at the end of the show is just do a little summary of what we've discussed. So what I'll maybe do is just signpost those five brilliant tips that you have really persuasively explored with us today. And I think the new teachers will thoroughly enjoy experimenting in their classrooms with. So the first brilliant tip was about encouraging that notion of mass participation and finding ways to build that into your lessons. The second was about that wait time that's so valuable, not just in terms of posing your questions, but also in terms of that moment where the students answer a question and letting that linger in that respect. The third was a sneaky two tips in one, two for the price of one, which was about using think using the pair share, think pair share. So in terms of giving students individual time before they have that conversation and then the crest of the wave, getting right in there, the pinnacle of the conversation, 
So the momentum within the lesson continues and you are surfing like an Australian. I'll stop there, Craig. And then tip number four, using those learner-generated examples. And I love the four mechanisms that Craig discussed with us that we can use in order to really, really make the most of them in lessons. And then that final fantastic one, that assessing, assigning confidence scores, which for me makes such perfect sense in giving students the ability to think through what they're doing in the classroom. So Craig, thank you so much for your time. I wonder if you might do um, a little pitch because I'll put links to your book, links to your brilliant podcast in there. Um, but you, you're a man who seems to have a slight obsession with uh, creating websites as well. There are a lot of websites out there that I know uh, new teachers will want to delve into. So where can they go to find out a little bit more about you? And where can they get hold of the book? Yeah, so thanks, Jamie. Um, easiest thing is just to go to Tips for Teachers. So if you Google Tips for Teachers or tipsforteachers.co.uk, I couldn't afford the .com. It's a long story. A guy wanted 12 grand for it. So we're .co.uk for now. So if you go there, you'll find a few things. So you'll find every conversation I've had with guests. And at the time at the time of recording this, maybe there's 30, 32, yourself included. And each guest that comes on the show, they share five tips. Could be on anything. So you did some great stuff on kind of well-being and also some stuff on check for understanding. And people attack it from all different things. So all the tips are there. They're available as an audio podcast. But what I also do is I record the videos of our conversation and I chop up the videos into individual tips. So what... I think is quite nice is teachers may listen to the podcast on the way to work or walking the dog or going for a run or whatever. They'll hear an interesting tip and they can then hop on the site and share the video of that tip round with their colleagues, maybe use it at a, an, an inset twilight or a departmental meeting as a bit of a stimulus for, for discussion. So you find all the audio and video on tips for teachers. You'll find the tips for teachers newsletter uh, free to sign up to. Everything's free. Uh, you get a tip in your inbox to try out in your classes every Monday morning at eight o'clock. Just a quick fire tip for that. And you'll also find the uh, Tips for Teachers book, which has been out a few weeks now. And that, as you say, it's got over 400. We've, we've looked at five tips as over 400 tips of a similar kind of thing, trying to make them as practical as possible so you can try them the very next time you step into a classroom. And there's also some online courses available as well. But everything you'll find at tipsforteachers.co.uk. And if I can just reiterate, Craig, it is an absolutely fantastic resource. And I think, as you pointed out there, it's it's free. I mean, I can't believe this. This is a free resource. It's not only podcasts, it's YouTube clips, it's newsletter. It is, so uh, I'll say a huge thank you um, for me and probably lots of the listeners who are already benefiting from that. And, you know, the young people who are the recipients of that as well. So thank you, Craig. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you so much for your time today. No, it's a, yeah, it's a wonderful podcast, Jamie. I'm a big fan, big fan of your work. So it's an honour to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us in this um, in this conversation today. And as always, if you found it something that's been helpful and useful for you, please do pass it on and then delve into the, the library of resources that I'm trying to grow that are specifically aimed at supporting teachers at the start of their career to thrive and continue to do well. So thank you and look forward to speaking to you again next week.